John chapter 13, picking it up in verse 4. Speaking of Christ, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know I have I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, and that when it is come to pass ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them, though because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. 
By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up the scriptures unto us by thy spirit, compass about us, that we might not think of anything this morning, save thy love for us and what thou hast done to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Well, this morning I'm going to be talking mainly about verse uh, 25 about John lying on the breast of Jesus, lying on his bosom. So that's where I'm going to be going with this. That's, that's the focus of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, we, last week we talked about Jesus washing the feet of the uh, disciples. And when he was doing that, he, kind of, he starts with a question here in verse 7. He says, um, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. In other words, you don't know what's happening here, but you're going to know later. And then after he's done it, in verse 12 he says, Know ye what I have done unto you? And I'll answer the question. The answer is no, they don't know. He's already told them they don't know, and he's told them that they're going to know later. So I think we can appreciate why he might ask that question, but not if we just stayed exclusively in the Gospel of John. If we were to look at some of the other Gospels about what was going on during the Last Supper, we would appreciate that it was probably like one of our family dinners. I'm thinking of some of the dinners we have had in the past where there's been a fair amount of strife going on in the background. I really appreciated our fellowship meal last Sunday because obviously it was around the theme of Thanksgiving. And so for years, my wife and I have said, you know, it would really be nice to celebrate Thanksgiving with our brothers and sisters in Christ because there would not be strife, unlike it is when we get together with our families. There is always something going on in the background. And I recall on one occasion, there were two people that had a political disagreement, so much so that one got up angrily and went home. And that was the end of the dinner for them. If you look at the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, um, picking it up in verse 24, it says quite clearly, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. So here you have our... 12 uh, disciples and apostles uh, sitting at the table with the Lord, and there's strife going on at the table here about which of them should be accounted uh, the greatest. Um, Anytime I think men get together, there's a certain amount of posturing that takes place as various egos are um, threatened or challenges or whatever, but there's always something going on in people's hearts there. Verse 25, and he said unto them, Jesus speaking, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. And so the Lord sets before them a wonderful example. He's been sent of God. He is God manifest in flesh, as I said before we began here. In him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and yet he is washing their feet, giving them an example by he who is the greatest is, uh, has become uh, their servant, and he is serving them. And so, again, we have to appreciate all of the things that are going on in the background here as we sit at the table here. Again, if you read Gospel of John, it just seems like the Lord is engaged in this wonderful teaching, which he is. John 17, we're going to have this wonderful prayer of the Lord, and it's going to speak about the eternality of his love, which is true, the unity that we can appreciate that we have in Christ and with the Godhead. And that's all true, too. But what's going on in the hearts of the individuals that are all sitting around the table with them? Uh, There's strife going on. 
we know here that um, Peter is going to boast about himself, uh, which we pick up in verse 31 here. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I think we should appreciate that the Lord always prays for us. In particular, he's talking about Peter. Peter is going to, of course, boast about himself. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And the Lord says, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou hast thrice denied that thou knowest me. Now, over in Matthew chapter 26, I... It's a little bit more, um, a little bit more detail there. Um, in verse thirty-one of Matthew twenty-six, the Lord says, "All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee." And then here's Peter in verse thirty-three. Peter answered and said unto him, "This is posturing, though all, meaning like everybody else in this room here, everybody else at the table." Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And then we hear it again. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter saith unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. Likewise also said all of the disciples. So there we have this strife going on about who's going to deny him and who loves him the most. And um, Judas um, is going to leave the room, which he does, and he goes out to de- uh, betray his Lord. So there's an awful lot of things going on in the background. So I think we can appreciate um, the need to wash their feet again. <laughs> no sooner has he finished washing their feet than I think they need to be washed again. And this is what he has set before them. He says, this is what you need to do to each other. And we talked about the significance of that, about how we would lift up one another, washing our feet by giving them scripture and placing the word in front of them so that we might know how we ought to behave ourselves and how we ought to conduct ourselves um, before God. Jesus, ever gentle, uh, ever gentle, uh, gentle, excuse me, ever gentle, convicts Peter of his rash statement with just a look. In Luke chapter 22, verse 16, uh, verse 61, Luke 22, uh, verse 61 and 22, uh, we see that the Lord simply looks at Peter. And with that simple look, there's conviction of what he has done and what the Lord has set before him in terms of what he would do. Uh, In verse 61, we read, And the Lord turned... And looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter clearly did not know his heart, nor did any of the disciples know their hearts. We don't know our hearts either. And the Lord says that about the heart of man. It is desperately wicked and deceitful among all things. Who can know it? It's the Lord who knows our hearts. And I want you to keep that thought in mind because later I'm going to develop that just a little bit in terms of the symbology that was set forth before us this morning when our deacon read from Exodus chapter 28. So with just a simple look, the Lord brings Peter's sin right to his uh, forefront and it convicts him and he weeps over it. In John chapter 21, the Lord kind of uh, brings us to a conclusion with respect to Peter. 
and uh, finishes the, um, the work, or I should say, continues to develop his heart over what he has done in terms of his denial. When he says to him in verse 15 of John 21, it said that this is after they had died, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? More than the other disciples that are here. And uh, Peter answers the question in a kind of a roundabout way without really getting, uh, answering it directly. No, you're right. I do not love you more than any of these other disciples here. That, I think we, we proved that when I denied you three times. So the Lord is ever working with their hearts. And I want us to appreciate that. He knows what is in everybody's heart. So while he's making these wonderful and, and very true um, statements in the Gospel of John, he knows what is going on in everybody's heart. He knows what we're thinking, and he knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows what our motivations are. He knows everything about us and everything that we are going to think, say, or do, and why we are going to do those things. And so I want us to appreciate that while all of these things are happening, while all of this strife is going on, while all of these um, um, gymnastics are going on in people's hearts, Christ knows about it, and yet he loves them. In verses 21 through 23 of John 13, we can appreciate that John is leaning, is reclining upon the bosom of the Lord. The Lord is allowing him to recline on his bosom. And John's heart isn't any different than anybody else's heart. It's not like he was cut from a different mold. We were all made out of the dust of the earth. And we are, every one of us are sinners. The scripture says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes John. The fact that he's identified as the beloved uh, disciple here doesn't mean he was beloved more than the others. Christ died for him just like he died for you and me. And so we are all loved of the Lord. And we've talked in the past about how that was the manifestation of God's great love for us and that he gave his only begotten son. And so we can appreciate, again, as the scripture says, in the midst of all of this strife, Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While these disciples were yet sinners and that strife going on, the Lord washed their feet. John, while he was yet a sinner, reclined on the bosom of the Lord. In Romans 5.6, it says almost the same thing. Christ died for the ungodly. God manifested himself in the flesh went to the cross and died for the ungodly. John is ungodly. All of these disciples are ungodly. So again, we have John reclining on the Lord's bosom while he is ungodly, while he was a sinner. And so the question I have when I read through this, I wonder if anybody in that room appreciates the significance of that, that fact that Jesus would allow John to recline in his bosom. Um, I find it somewhat humorous that Peter is motioning to try to find out an answer to a question. You know, he asks John to ask the Lord the question. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you have to go through anybody to get to Christ. We have direct access to Christ. Every single one of his people has direct access to him. And we read that, or excuse me, we sung that in the hymn this morning, And Can It Be, that we boldly go before the throne of grace, where you might find... um, seek help and grace in time of need. Everybody can come directly to Christ. All of his sheep, all of his children uh, can do that. And so, again, I ask the question, do you think anybody in the room understood the significance of that? And the Lord has already answered that question. No, they don't. Not yet. They will when they receive the Holy Ghost, who will teach them all things, lead them in all truth. Then they will understand it. And interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, 
uh, John does speak about that, reclining on the, in the bosom. There's some significance of that. When he says in verse 18 of John chapter 1, he says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Jesus is the visible revelation of the living God. He's the brightness of his glory. Um, and it speaks of here, here in John 1.18 about actually being in bosom of God. So can we appreciate the unity here between God the Son and God the Father if God the Son is in the bosom of God the Father? Surely we can infer something that when John himself is reclining on the bosom of Christ. And so we can appreciate our unity that we have with the Father through Christ. So the Lord helps us link all of these things together in the Gospel of John. And so did John understand that? Not when he was doing it, but I think he understood it later when the Holy Ghost revealed that that truth to us. Now, if we take a few steps backwards and look at the big picture here about the way God has um, um, made man and women, there are anatomical characteristics of men and women that... uh, Help us appreciate God's love, God's care, and his providence to men. And uh, God is the one who has, um, well, I'm, I'm trying to use language here that would be, um, that would be suitable for children. <laughs> um, the fact that babies receive nourishment in the proximity of the heart is designed by God because the heart is something we all understand as the center of a person's love. We know that faith um, is to be had in the heart. We are to believe in our heart, you know, that, that Jesus uh, is the Christ and Jesus is God, and that, that faith in the heart is the faith that the Bible speaks of in terms of our regeneration and in terms of um, being saved by grace through faith. So God has orchestrated um, or made women in his image too. And so he uses this analogy in the scripture that we would appreciate these things. In Genesis 1.27, we read, uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So men are created in the image of God and women are created in the image of God. So God uses this similitude and this analogy in terms of the anatomical characteristics of women that we might appreciate how he cares for us, his saints, his children. In Isaiah chapter 66, I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. In Isaiah 66, verses 9 through 12, the Lord helps us to appreciate this. This is language that, that he used. It's, he's speaking of himself as giving birth to the uh, Christian, because the, the, that's what's in view here, giving birth to his children. In Isaiah 66... Verse 9, he says, Shall I, meaning God, bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? In other words, is it going to be a miscarriage? Of course not. The child's not going to be stillborn. Speaking about us. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem. And be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. Now, what is Jerusalem here? He's not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jerusalem that is from above. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 26 lays that before us. In Galatians 4, 26, the Lord says, 
But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So he's likening a city here to a woman that would give birth. That is the, um, the uh, city uh, from above that has given birth to us all. The heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is from above. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses um, 22 through uh, 24, again, he makes reference to this. The Lord makes reference to this. He says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So he's linking God here with Mount Zion, with the heavenly Jerusalem, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now he's calling it the church of the firstborn, a general assembly which are written in heaven, and to God. Now he's linking it to God uh, specifically, the judge of all, who and to the spirits of just men made perfect, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and of the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So the Lord is placing all of these things together, heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Jesus, God, all of the saints as, as one body. Think of them as, as one because of that we are all united one with another. So back in here in Isaiah 66.10, he's talking about um, rejoicing with Jerusalem, which is giving birth to the saints, that ye, meaning us, may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolation, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. Clearly he's likening himself to a mother that giveth comfort, that giveth love, that giveth nourishment, that holds a child um, like a mother does. Verse 13, As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comforteth you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So he's drawing a, a clear relationship between a woman that loves a child, that gives a child uh, birth, that um, gives a child, uh, that nurses a child, giving it um, nutrition. And indeed, uh, we know that uh, in the mother's milk, it contains certain antibodies that help build up the immune system of the child. So there's just everything we read in here should help us to appreciate the glory in which a God has um, designed women, how he has made them in their image, and how he's drawing from those characteristics to liken himself unto that so that we would appreciate um, what we might enjoy in him and how he might love us, uh, bear us up, and care for us. And so John, simply leaning on the bosom of the Lord, is opening this up to us, how wonderful a picture that is that we are seeing in um, um, the Gospel of, of John there. Now, again, it is God who in Christ cares for us, loves us, and, and nurtures us, and he feeds us. We talk about Christ being the bread from heaven, you know, that we would receive spiritual meat and sustenance from him. But in the context here, we also receive milk. It talks about in um, Corinthians about how first we receive milk, and then we receive meat. So the young Christian, they have to be fed on, meat for, on milk first, lest they, lest they would choke. Now... Again, speaking of this idea of the Lord bearing us up and carrying us in his bosom, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and 11, um, the Lord again uses that uh, analogy in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. 
O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Verse 11 now. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. So as we read this here, again, we, we appreciate this, this picture of the Lord picking us up and carrying us over his heart, carrying us in his bosom, um, protecting us and uh, nurturing us and taking us where we need to go. Uh, there are many places in the scriptures that tell us that we should not trust in ourselves we should not trust in man. We should not trust in chariots. We should not trust in horses. We most certainly should not trust in ourselves, but rather we should only trust in God. When you consider the trials and tribulations that Moses suffered when he was trying to lead God's people through the wilderness, um, he figured out pretty quick that he couldn't do it. He, that he was really struggling with the people. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, he sets that before us here. This is the occasion when the Lord has been feeding the children of Israel with um, manna from heaven, and which we know is a um, picture of Christ, and they grow weary of it. And that's a very bad sign when they are getting tired of Christ. And so they want to have meat to eat. And so they're complaining, and then Moses says in verse 11, And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? It's a burden. We are a burden. But the Lord bears us up. Verse 12. Have I conceived all this people? What's the answer? No, the Lord did. He just told us that. Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth a suckling child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? He's saying, Can I do this? Did I bear these children up? Did I give birth to them? And the answer is no to all of it. You didn't give birth to them, and you most certainly can't bear the burden of getting them where they need to go. Even if God gives others to him to share that burden. And so you go down to verse 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. So he's going to spread the workload out a little bit, but only the children of faith are going to make it into the promised land. <laughs> These seventy men are not going to make it so that uh, you know anybody other than whom God has determined gets into the promised land. It is only by faith. And so when all the men of war have died out, all people that might trust in themselves or others might trust in them, when all they have died out, then they go into the promised land. So the fact that the Lord gives them 70 elders to help him um, spread the burden out doesn't matter. Only God can get us into the promised land. Only the Lord here, he uses this imagery again, lifts us up, presses us close to his heart, and carries us in his bosom, carries us in his arms, and gets us to where we need to go. So, given the things that we've seen here, I hope we can appreciate um, why it's significant that John is reclining on the bosom of Christ. Now, where did this analogy start? 
Well, it started where our deacon read in um, Exodus chapter 28. And so I want to remind us of a couple of things there because there was something in particular that I was wanted set before us. I want us to appreciate the uh, breastplate. That's really what I wanted to have him uh, speak for us this morning. Now, when God ordained that things should be made the way they should be made, um, I read the descriptions and I wonder if I could have made the things that they made. I wondered if I could have understood the directions and followed them. And I have come to the conclusion that I cannot. If you look these things up in scripture, you'll find that Different men have different ideas of what these things look like. In verse 3 of 28 here, the Lord says, And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. In other words, God had to impress upon the people that were actually going to do it how these things would be made. And it's very important that they be made properly. Up in verse 1, we find out that Aaron had, past tense, four boys. Nadab and Abihu didn't live very long because they offered strange fire before the Lord. You can read about that in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. They offered strange fire before the Lord, and the Lord killed them on the spot. He burned them. So their ministry did not last very long. So we need to appreciate here that things have to be done the way God said they should be done. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is giving instructions to um, Aaron about how he's to conduct himself on the Day of Atonement. And he says in there, um, follow these instructions, that he die not. You're going to do it my way. You're going to have to follow these instructions or I will kill you. I've heard uh, pastors preach that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would tie a rope upon his leg and then go into the holiest of holies. And then if he died, they'd drag him out. And I'm thinking to myself, if you tie a rope around your legs, you will be dead the minute you cross the threshold of the veil because you have not followed God's instructions. You have perverted the garments of the, of the priesthood. And all of these things have meaning. So no, you're not going to tie a rope around your leg. You're going to do it exactly the way God told you to do it or you're going to be, or you'll be slain. And in Hebrews chapter 8, The Lord helps us to appreciate that. In Hebrews chapter 8, he talks about how these things were shadows and types of the reality, in the priesthood in particular. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 5, he says, Now of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, speaking of Christ, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Christ offers himself, these priests offer up other things. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5 is the one I'm after here. Who serve, that would be the priests on earth, who serve as an example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern shown to thee on the um, mount. In other words, do it exactly the way I'm telling you to do it so that people can appreciate what these shadows are um, 
alluding to, what these types are alluding to. It's teaching us about Christ. The breastplate, as you know, as our deacon read for us this morning, had 12 stones in three rows upon the um, breast of the high priest. On each stone was written the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you need to think of yourself as the 12 tribes as representative of the church. You need to appreciate that your name is written on one of those stones. Each of us individually, uh, in terms of the uh, typology of the priesthood set before us here, our names are written on the heart of God. When Christ goes in as the high priest to minister before God on our behalf, our names are on his heart. They're over his bosom. Just as John is reclining upon the bosom of Christ, so too, uh, metaphorically speaking, are we ever on the heart of Christ. And so that is what the Lord is setting uh, before us here. Um, Christ, of course, is the true high priest. And that's what the Lord helps us to appreciate when he's setting forth this information in Hebrews chapter um, 8. Again, respecting the importance of these things, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 here, um, the Lord speaking through the pen of Paul is, wants us to appreciate that when the Apostle Paul went forth and set up uh, the church, he was doing the same thing um, that Moses was doing in terms of things had to be done properly here. So in verse uh, 9, of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For we are laborers together of God, for we are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. So there's this uh, allusion already to a, uh, a building here, a temple. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, just as Moses went up uh, into the mountain and was given instructions of God on how that he was to build all of these things, how they were to make the temple, how they were to make the, uh, the, the tabernacle, rather, um, how they were to set up the laver, you know, the altars, the uh, garments for the priesthood, all of those things had meaning, and Moses was um, admonished to follow the directions. Well, Paul, you know, was taken up into the third heaven, and he was given revelation from God, and so he has um, he set forth proper doctrine here, that Christ would be the foundation of, of the church. And so it's important for us to appreciate the things that are written here. And so again, we can appreciate the analogy that the Lord, uh, I think, has set before us when he has John reclining on um, the Lord's uh, bosom. Now, as we continue to read back in Exodus chapter 28, there was something else that was very interesting name here. In verse 29 of Exodus 28, the Lord says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his horse when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So I've already said that. Again, our names are written on the heart of the Lord. They are there continuously. Um, and uh, the Lord ever bears us when he goes before uh, the Heavenly Father. Now, in verse 30, it speaks of something else that is also in the breastplate. And it says, Thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. 
Now, what is this umen and thumen? Um, well, they're a bit... Um, um, they're difficult to understand what they are because there's not much written about them. And if you look it up in commentaries, they're going to tell you the exact same thing I just told you, that there's just not much known about them. What is interesting is the words that they come from. The word urim comes from the plural, the word light. It means lights. And thumamen means perfection. And they were used as a means, that God used as a means to communicate um, to his people. If an individual had a question, and not just anybody, it talks in particular here about how Joshua would come before the priest and seek God's will by asking, then the priest would ask the umim and the thumen. And you read about that in Numbers 27, verses 18 through 21. I'll read that in Numbers 27, 18 through 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thy hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. Verse 20. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word shall they go out, and at his word shall they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So they were to ask, seek counsel of God through the Umen, Urim, and the Thurman. And um, it wasn't used very often. It's not mentioned very much in Scripture. But again, what is significant here is that they're in the, in the breastplate. The breastplate was folded up, and so it was stuck in the breastplate and the, uh, over the Lord's heart over which then would be the 12 names written upon it. Now, God didn't always answer the questions when they were asked of him through the Umen and the Thuman. And we saw that uh, in 1 Samuel when uh, King Saul sought counsel, and the Lord did not answer him. You read that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6. And it says there, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by Prophets. And so the Lord did not speak to or did not answer um, King Saul's questions. And it should be obvious why he did not do that, because Saul sought um, the witch of Endor to answer questions for him. He was a sinner, and he was estranged from God. And that's a, there's a principle we can appreciate that here. When you're sinning, maybe you feel a little estranged from the Lord, that he's not, um, you don't feel him near, near to you. But we do know that with respect to the, his saints, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But my experience has been that when I'm walking in sin, that I feel a, um, a, a sense of estrangement uh, between the Lord and me. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his heart, his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will hear not. Now, he's speaking that to national Israel. We are never separated from the Lord. He always hears us. But I'm simply sharing this with you, that when you're walking in sin, you will feel a sense of estrangement from the Lord. So you're not going to find that um, the Lord's answering your prayers like he would normally do if you were walking with him. Um, now, again, back to the uh, Urim and the Thummim, is I think we can appreciate how those things represent Christ. Um, Urim, as I mentioned, comes from the plural of the word lights. 
We know that in 1 John 1, 5, it speaks of God, how uh, Christ says that God is light, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and the same thing is true with Christ. He says of himself, I am the light of the world. We read in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. In James 1, 17, speaking of Christ, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So here's a wonderful transition because where did Christ come from? He came from above. He was given of the Father and he is a perfect gift. The word thumen, thumen means perfection. It means perfect. And that, of course, describes Christ too. He is the Lamb without blemish and without spot. So again, these things are in the breastplate over which is our names written on stones. And so I want us to appreciate that Christ knows everything that is in our hearts. Think of those stones as perfection and light shining through the, uh, the stones of which our names are written on coming out from the heart of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it speaks about this. It speaks about how God knows, Christ knows everything about us. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the joints and spirit and of the joints and marrow, of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13, neither is there any creature it is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I have said this many times, and I will say it again this morning. I appreciate the fact that Christ knows everything about me. He knows every thought I have. He knows my, my motivations, and yet he loves me in spite of myself. He loves me, and he died for me, and he paid for every one of my sins. There's not one sin that was hidden from him, is hidden from him, or will ever be hidden from him. He knows everything, and he paid for all of my sins. And I would, and as John is here, we can think of ourselves metaphorically, we are all reclining upon his bosom, right over his heart, and that he's going to carry us, and he's going to make sure that we get into the, um, quote, promised land. He's going to see that we get to glory. Everything um, that we read here is indicative of God's um, bearing us up in his bosom, bosom is ever um, love and providence of for us. As the scripture clearly says, there is nothing there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing. And so in the symbology of the uh, priesthood's um, um, vestments that he is to wear and what is written on them and the way that they are organized and, and, and worn, it's all indicative of what Christ has done to us, as he says in John 13. It's indicative of his love for us. And he says that here in terms of that, that is how that uh, people will know that you are my disciples is because of that, that love. And that is certainly a distinguishing characteristic of Christ himself. Can you ever think of anything he did that was not rooted in love? Everything he did was rooted in love. He served people, and when he spake, he always spake the, um, he always spake the truth. And so... Um, in like manner, we who would bear his image, who are uh, being conformed to the image of Christ, we should, those characteristics should be manifest in us too. We should serve one another as he has set forth before us here 
and we certainly should love one another. So I appreciate, again, our fellowship meals. Uh, They are not marked by strife. You know, they are marked by deference, and they are marked by love, as indeed it it should be. So we'll conclude with that, and next week we'll uh, pick it up also in John 13. Amen. Amen.